All right, it's great to be with you. It's great to be back in Texas. I lived in Texas for several years, and three of my four kids were born here. And I have to say, I don't remember it ever being this cool in June. So we can be very thankful for that. This is a little bit unusual. Usually it's, uh, it's a lot hotter. Uh, we got a great few days in store for us. Uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think it's already been a lot of fun, right? Uh, it's going to be a time, I think, of learning and growing for you, uh, enjoying God's people, enjoying God's creation. The uh, topic uh, that Pastor Neil gave me uh, was Christian identity. And so we'll be talking about that, but I want to frame it in a real specific way. Uh, at our church, we use a slogan. It's kind of a, a motto for us. We talk about mission and maturity. Those are kind of the two aspects of, of the church's life. We have a mission out to the world, and we want to be growing to maturity as God's people. Uh, and I want us to think in terms of those categories here, but I also want to put this with it. This is kind of the motto or the, the slogan, the label that I want to use this week for my talks, how to be a cutting-edge, old-fashioned Christian. See that cutting edge and old-fashioned at the same time. We've got to be cutting edge, Christians, because we want to address the challenges that the church is facing today. Our culture is so fluid, so rapidly changing. Uh, we've got to be alert to what's happening all around us so we aren't simply swept away from the path God wants us to walk in uh, so that we can speak with grace and with clarity and uh, with wisdom and with authority to our culture. The culture needs the church to speak God's truth in a wise and winsome way. We need to learn to do that. We need to be cutting-edge Christians. But we also need to be old-fashioned Christians. So many Christians who try to become cutting-edge, uh, they lose their grip on the gospel. They lose their grip on those foundational truths that make the church what she is. The world changes. The gospel does not. And so no matter what happens in the world, no matter what new questions come along, the same old gospel the church has always confessed will always hold the answers. So amen, right? Amen to that. It's all about the gospel, and that's what we're really, really going to focus on this week. So I've got a series of topics uh, that we're going to be looking at this week. So let me give you a quick overview of where we're going so you'll know. And hopefully you can see, even though these topics don't really seem that connected, hopefully you can see how they're threaded together uh, by the end. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to talk about kindness, and especially kindness as a way of building Christian community. We live in a crass and cruel culture, a culture where people are isolated and lonely, a culture of meanness. God's people should stand out because of their kindness. Kindness should characterize our lives as the people of God. If we're going to reach our culture, if we're going to change the culture, we've got to live countercultural lives. And one way to do that, one way the church can be a countercultural community, is through showing kindness. If we're going to mature as the people of God and build a strong, healthy church community, a platform from which we can reach out to the world, we've got to learn to practice kindness uh, in, our, in our own communities, in our own church bodies, our church families. Uh, tonight, then, I'm going to talk about uh, judgmentalism. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, do not judge. It's the world's favorite Bible verse, right? I mean, anytime we want to say something is a sin, which we as Christians will do, we're going to be accused of being judgmental. That's the play the world is running on us right now. The words of Jesus are actually being used against the church. And so we need to ask, what did Jesus actually mean when he said, judge not, do not judge? 
what we'll see when we look at those words in Matthew 7 is that there is a deeper right than being right. It's not enough to be right. We have to be right in the right way. Can we be right without being self-righteous? If the world has this kind of stereotypical view of Christians as smug and self-righteous and judgmental, how can we explode that? We'll see our identity is not only expressed in kindness, it's also expressed in humility. Uh, Then the third talk tomorrow, we're going to talk about fear, what we should fear the most. What do you fear and why? What's your biggest fear in life? What does Scripture mean when it commands us to fear God? Fearing God leads to wisdom, to a wise way of life. Uh, And, of course, wisdom is associated with maturity. We want to mature in Christ. We have to fear God and, and grow in wisdom. Uh, wisdom is rooted in the old past. God has revealed to us. But, uh, sorry, I'm getting thirsty here. I'm sure you all are hot too. <laughs> I'm trying to stay hydrated. Uh, so we need wisdom. And wisdom comes from the fear of God. <clears throat> and then finally, my fourth and fifth talks are going to be on sex. Okay, what would summer camp be without a sex talk, right? Uh, You've got to have at least one, but this time you get two. At no extra charge. Uh, If there's any area of life where our culture is confused, it's sexuality. And if there's an area of life where we need to be grounded in our identity in Christ, it is in our sexuality. So we want to look at God's design for marriage, for family, for us as men and women. What does it mean to be male and female? Why, a few minutes ago, uh, did we say that the guys should get up and give their seats to the ladies? Why do we do that kind of thing? Why practice that kind of chivalry? That right there tells you there's a difference between men and women. What are those differences? What do they mean? We need to explore that. We need to understand that. Uh, When we talk about manhood and womanhood, our culture is clueless. Our culture is absolutely clueless in this area. And so one of the best things we can do for ourselves and for our culture is figure out masculinity and femininity. Uh, It's absolutely essential for us. Uh, Our culture may not like what we have to say. Our culture may hate what we have to say about these things, but we need to say them nonetheless with clarity and with conviction. Uh, The world is pressuring us to embrace things like same-sex marriage, uh, to embrace the gay rights movement, to embrace transgenderism, uh, to say that sex before marriage is no big deal, that the hookup culture is not really a big deal, uh, to allow for abortion. We are told that we're bigoted and unloving. We're told we're judgmental. Uh, We're told we're waging a war on women if we don't go along with these things. Uh, We're told we need to accept feminism and androgyny and effeminacy. Okay, when I was your age, I don't even think I knew what any of those words meant. Okay, but I'll talk about those words. We need to understand what these things are. Uh, This is the most crucial area where we are in conflict with the culture, where we have to be both old-fashioned and cutting-edge. There's all this sexual confusion in our culture, rampant sexual confusion. We've got to recover God's design for sex and for the sexes. We've got to recover and practice God's design for sexuality, for marriage, for love, for family. And it's such a big big topic, I'm going to give it two talks, one really for the men and one really for the women, one for the guys, one for the gals. And uh, so that's what we're going to do this week. Those, Those are the topics we're going to be covering And I hope you can see how these are all very relevant topics. If we want to engage our culture, if we want to be faithful, a faithful presence, if we want to represent Jesus in our culture, if we want to change our culture, 
These are the kinds of things we need to be putting into practice, the kinds of things we need to be focusing on. So, as I said, this first talk is going to be on kindness. So, let me read for us from Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 32, and I'll go through verse 2 of chapter 5. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children... And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would bless our time in your word, uh, that you would speak to us through your scripture, that you would fill us with wisdom, that we might be true to the old paths you've revealed to us in Scripture, but we might know how to apply your timeless truth, your eternal truth, to the ever-changing circumstances we find ourselves in. We pray you would do this for us through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In 1982, a woman by the name of Ann Herbert in Sausalito, California, got fed up. She got fed up with what she was seeing on the evening news, which seemed to be nothing more than random acts of violence and senseless acts of cruelty. The news beat her down night after night. And so she started a movement called the Random Acts of Kindness Movement. She began to uh, encourage people uh, to perform random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty, as she called them. And this really caught on. It uh, became a fad of sorts. You know, sometimes these kind of things catch on. We say today they go viral. They didn't talk that way back in the 80s, but that's what happened. Uh, even today, you can still see some bumper stickers and T-shirts on occasion that use this slogan. It gets mentioned in pop culture and movies and books and so forth. And, of course, that's not a bad thing. To uh, perform acts of kindness and acts of beauty is a good thing. But in Ephesians 4.32, when Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, even as God in Christ forgave you, forgive one another, he's got something else in mind. Not random acts of kindness, but consistent, habitual acts of kindness, constant kindness, a lifestyle of kindness. Indeed, in the church, Paul wants a culture of kindness to be put on display. He wants kindness to characterize Uh, our lives as Christians. And there is something remarkably attractive and magnetic about a life of kindness. But kindness does not come easy. It's not easy to be kind. Kindness cannot coexist with selfishness. Think of all the words we put self in front of. We talk about uh, self-esteem or self-fulfillment or self-actualization. But then think about what Jesus does. What does he put self in front of? Denial. We talk about self-actualization, self-esteem. Jesus talks about self-denial. You see the difference there. We hear a lot today about living life to the fullest, but Jesus lived life to the emptiest. That's actually how Philippians 2 puts it. Philippians 2.6 says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus emptied himself in order to fill us. He poured his life out in order to fill us with his life and with his love. Jesus emptied himself on the cross to fill you with new life. He died so you might live and you might live a new kind of way. Kindness starts with understanding the kindness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. Our acts of kindness, our lifestyle of kindness, our culture of kindness flows out of the gospel. 
It flows out of what Christ has done for us, the kindness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. In a sense, you could take this passage in Ephesians 4, uh, the end of chapter 4, the start of chapter 5 I just read, and you could sort of paraphrase it this way, be kind to others as God in Christ has been kind to you. Forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. Deal with others, treat others the way God has dealt with you and treated you. The call to kindness is a reminder that we are called to live in community. Uh, Everything Paul says about the Christian life in the book of Ephesians and, of course, everywhere else, assumes that the Christian life is a social life, a communal life, uh, a life that uh, takes place within a web or network of relationships. The Christian exists uh, within uh, the, the context of community. Uh, the, the, the Christian life is a churchly life. A Christian can't be a faithful Christian without also being a churchman. Uh, there was a secular philosopher who once said that uh, religion is what people do with their solitude. Now, that may be true for some religions, like, say, Buddhism, uh, but it's not true of the Bible. Uh, for Christians, religion is what we do in community. Uh, religion is communal. Uh, according to the Bible's account of, uh, uh, of human nature, who we are as humans, uh, we are relational to the core. We are relational beings because we're made in the image of the relational God. Maybe some of you have thought about this before or heard this kind of thing taught. It's a good thing to think about. In Genesis chapter 1, the one God says, let us make man in our image. And one question that's been asked of that text uh, in Genesis 1 is, why does the one God speak in plural language when he undertakes this activity of creating Humanity. If God is one, why the plural pronouns? Why does God speak in terms of us and our? Well, of course, we learn as the story of Scripture unfolds, uh, what we find is this God who is one is also three. The one God mysteriously exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's three persons who share the same divine attributes, the same divine life. The one God exists as a family or society of persons. The God who is one is also three. We are made in the image of this God. And so we are made for community. We're made for family, for society, for relationship. We're made to image God which means we're made to image the Trinity. So you could say that we as humans have been given a Trinity-shaped script for life. Human life is inescapably designed to be communal. And this is why when you look at the way the New Testament describes church life, one thing you see again and again is what you call these one-another commands. Uh, We're supposed to one-another one-another. So you've got commands like love one-another, serve one-another, forgive one-another, pray for one-another... Be kind to one another in Ephesians 4.32. Now, one thing that I think is frustrating about the English language and our English translations of the Bible is we often lose this distinction between a singular you and a plural. Maybe this is also something that you've heard talked about or, or thought about yourself. It's easy to read a lot of passages in the New Testament that are addressed to you, say, uh, as singular when really they're plural. This is, you know, people will say we need, what we really need is a southern translation of the Bible uh, because southerners are able to turn you into y'all when they mean you collectively. 
And there's a lot to be said for that. I, I think that's right. I think that would help us. So think about some passages like this. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, have that same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. But actually, it's not talking about you as an individual. It's you as a community. Have that same mind in y'all that was in Christ Jesus. Collectively, as a community, you're supposed to have the mind of Christ. Colossians 1.27, Christ in y'all is the hope of glory, but in you as a community, that's the hope of glory. Or Ephesians 2.22, y'all are being built together into a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. It's not just you individually. It's not just that you as an individual are a place where God has taken up residence, but it's within our community. Collectively, this is where God dwells. Together, we're the temple of God. The Christian faith requires a shift in grammar from I to us, from me to we, from you to y'all. We have to think corporately if we're going to think Christianly. The Christian life is a communal life. It's not enough to be united to Jesus by faith on your own. You've also got to be united to Jesus' people. And you cannot separate those. You cannot be united to Jesus without being a member of his body, which, of course, is corporate. It's communal. It's not like you first get united to Jesus by faith, and then as a sort of second step tacked onto that, you go out and uh, decide to join a church. It actually goes together. In fact, it's really interesting. Consider this language from the end of Acts 2. This is Pentecost. We just celebrated Pentecost Sunday. So uh, maybe you even read this passage on Sunday in your church. Uh, Acts chapter 2, the very end of it. The Spirit's been poured out. Peter has preached his sermon. Thousands have been baptized. And then this is, this is how it summarizes what happened at the end of Acts 2. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Being saved and being added to the church were really two sides of the same coin, two ways of looking at the same reality. You can't be joined to Christ without being joined to his body. I think you see this with the sacraments. Uh, God has given us these sacraments. Christ left these sacraments to his church. And the sacraments show us, I think, the inescapably corporate nature of the Christian life. Think about a baptism. Can anybody ever get baptized alone? No, not in a Christian way, because you don't baptize yourself. Uh, there's always got to be at least two people there, one who's doing the baptism, one who's being baptized. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you are baptized into the body of Christ. Baptism inserts you into a community. It makes you a member of a family. It's an adoption ritual. You're now a part of the family of God. And no Christian is an only child. Every Christian calls on God as father. And every Christian has a bunch of siblings, a bunch of brothers and sisters in the Lord. Same with the Lord's Supper. You obviously can't do the Lord's Supper alone. Uh, it is a communion meal. It is an act done by and for the community. We eat Christ's body. And, and as we eat Christ's body, in a sense, we become Christ's body. Uh, we drink the wine, uh, certainly as a way of communing in the blood of Christ, but also so we can be poured out for one another, poured out for each other and for the life of the world. The Lord's Supper is inescapably communal. Christians don't fly solo. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Uh, you have to have a band of brothers and sisters in order to live 
the Christian life. It cannot be lived in isolation. So think about this. You know, some of you are maybe just on the verge of perhaps going off to college. Some point in your life, you will leave home and uh, go out on your own. Maybe that's still a few years away for you. But think about this. When you do leave home, your top priority should be finding a Christian community, a church to join, to become a part of, to find that band of brothers and sisters that you can share the Christian life with. Because you can't do it on your own. Find a church with good teaching, with faithful worship, with strong community. Plug yourself into it, no matter what other flaws there might be. And every church has got its flaws. You've got pastors here who I think would affirm that. Every church has got its flaws. Plug yourself into that community. Throw yourself into it. Get involved. Build relationships. Don't go looking for the perfect church. Find a church. Join it. Plug yourself in. You don't have to be an extrovert to go and do this. Uh, You can be the most introverted person. And still, you need this kind of community. You cannot live the Christian life without it. Understand that kindness is essential to this kind of community. Kindness creates a community that isn't just composed of people just like yourself. You know, we tend to clump together with people who are just like us. We want to find people who've got the same tastes and interests and background. And certainly those things are crucial ingredients to a lot of our friendships. But Christian community goes way beyond that. And Christian community brings you into contact with all sorts of people who are not going to share your interests and who might even be quite irritating to you. Christian community throws you in with all sorts of people. Uh, I like to think about the Lord of the Rings when I think about what the... Uh, I'm not saying Tolkien intended this as an analogy for the church, but I think there are some, uh, some, some helpful ways of thinking about the church that we see reflected in the Fellowship of the Ring, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Think about the fellowship there. What is it composed of? You know, you've got hobbits, elves, dwarves, wizards. They're all very different Uh, In some cases, they don't like each other all that much. They don't get along all that well. And yet they are bound together in a fellowship, in a communion, to serve one another. They share a common mission of destroying Mordor's power so that joy and righteousness and life and laughter can prevail. And so even though there's this friction between them at times, they come together, they work together. They become a a team, a, a fellowship. Well, in the church, that's what you have. That's what the communion of saints is all about. We often have our differences, things that would create friction between us. Naturally, or we could say in the flesh, we might not like one another that much all the time. But we don't regard one another in the flesh. The gospel teaches us to regard one another in Christ. In the church, water is thicker than blood. Baptism binds us together even more tightly than our natural family bonds do. The family formed by the Spirit is greater than the family formed by the flesh. We share one life in Christ. We share one mission to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and bring in the glorious kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. In the church, you could say there are hobbits and dwarves and elves and wizards. We have our differences. We can be quite different from one another. But we are bound together, bound together by a common mission, bound together by a common hope that our great king is returning, the king and his kingdom. This is what brings us together, and this is what drives our kindness. The problem is, in our society, we 
think of ourselves as individuals before we think of ourselves as members of a community. I talked about a Trinitarian script for life, a communal script, but we really want an individualistic script. That's what our culture teaches us. Uh, That's a big aspect, a big part of American culture, the individualist script. Uh, Americans tend to think that I precedes we. We tend to think, or we are trained to think by our culture, that we are self-made men and self-made women. But Scripture really reverses this. In fact, I can give you a very easy refutation of that kind of American individualism. Just look at your belly button. Not right now. (laughs) We don't want people lifting up their shirts in here. Not right now. But just think about this. What does your belly button tell you about yourself? Okay. It tells you, it's a reminder to you that you came from somewhere, from someone. Your belly button proves that you are not an autonomous being, an autonomous creature. You are dependent, and you are dependent from the very beginning of your life, and there are certain ways in which you are still dependent to this very day and will always be dependent on others. Your belly button means you are connected to another in the womb, But even out of the womb, you're connected to others. You're called to build connections with others. You're not self-made. You're others-made. remember uh, hearing one pastor talk about this whole idea of being a self-made man. And he said, well, you know, if you're really self-made, there's some pretty shoddy workmanship there. (laughs) It's not very good craftsmanship. Okay? If you try to make yourself, build yourself, it just doesn't work. Who you are is very much the product of what other people have poured into you, and you've got to recognize that about yourself. Quite literally, every one of us is the product of community, beginning with the communion of our parents who brought us into existence. You are quite literally the product of the communion of others. You were a you before you were an I. You were spoken to before you could speak for yourself. You were made and formed by others before you could even contemplate making and forming yourself into a unique individual. Now, in saying this, I'm not denying that you are a unique individual. Every one of us is unique. Actually, if you look at the Trinity, there are things that are unique about the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, things that distinguish each one. And there's things that distinguish each one of us. We have certain ways in which we are unique and and, and distinct from one another. And those are good things, and, and, and we can bring those things out in various kinds of ways. But we need to see that God has made us for community. And even when we talk about the things that make us unique, those things are best expressed, most fully and faithfully expressed in the context of community and not in isolation. Living in community will teach you things about yourself you would not find otherwise. You will discover yourself in community in ways you could never do on your own. So when God calls us to a community of kindness, he's really calling us to live in accord with our design, no matter how difficult it might be to live in community now in a fallen world. God's calling us to live in accord with what we were made for, what we were designed for. We were made in and for relationship. Friendship and community is a key to our humanity. Loneliness and isolation are dehumanizing. There's a great line that, uh, from C.S. Lewis where Lewis says, uh, there's no greater pleasure on earth than a circle of Christian friends around a fire. Right? I mean, just don't you love those times where you have those close connections with others, that deep connectedness? 
That's what we're made for. You will find yourself and find true joy in Christian community, not apart from it. And when you experience it, you know it's a little foretaste of heaven. It's a little piece of heaven on earth, that kind of community. Uh, there was a, a, uh, an existentialist philosopher, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, maybe some of you have or will read him. Uh, as an existentialist, he, was, uh, he very much pushed the kind of individualism that I'm critiquing here. But there's one place where Sartre says, hell is other people. Okay, why would he say such a thing? Hell is other people. Well, it's because other people are constantly getting in the way of my self-expression. Other people keep me from getting to do what I want. I would guess there are a lot of times where you, you may not articulate it just the way Sartre did, but you feel that way. Your parents get in the way of what you want to do. Hell is other people. Your siblings get in the way of what you want to do. Hell is other people. Your teacher gets in the way of what you want to do. Hell is other people. Sartre says, hell is other people. No. Lewis is right. Other people are a foretaste of heaven. And when other people seem to be getting in your way, it's not that hell is other people. It's that there's still a hellish kind of selfishness within yourself that has to be driven out. And that's what you need to look at. Now, what is kindness? Most simply, uh, I would say kindness is living as if people mattered. It's being considerate, thoughtful, compassionate, servant-oriented. Obviously, it's closely associated with love. Paul associates it with being tender-hearted and with forgiveness there in Ephesians. Sounds simple enough, I suppose, but it's not easy to do. It is deeply challenging. And of course, again, it's deeply challenging because of our sin. God made humanity good and righteous. But we know what happened, right? Through our first parents, Adam and Eve, we turned against God. And in turning against God, we also turned against each other. That's what you see with Adam and Eve, right? As soon as they're alienated from God, they're also alienated from one another. And kindness has been hard to come by ever since because kindness requires us to overcome that alienation and build a bridge back to the other. If kindness is acting as if other people matter, sin is acting as if I alone matter. Sin is acting as if I am the only one in the universe. I'm the only one who really matters. What I want is the only thing that matters. Sin is self-absorption. All sin, in one way or another, is an expression of self-absorption. Sin makes it impossible to be thoughtful of others, to be considerate towards others, to be uh, compassionate or forgiving towards others. And, of course, we know our world is filled with sin. Our world is filled with selfishness. And for that reason, the world aches, the world hurts because of the lack of kindness. Again, Sartre says hell is other people. So often our world begins to look like hell because people live sinful, selfish lives. And my guess is that if I were to poll you and say, you know, do you consider yourself a kind person? We'll probably all say yes. Uh, But my guess is that we all overestimate how kind we are. And we all underestimate how selfish and critical of others we can be. We suffer from kindness blindness, from not seeing blind spots where we don't show kindness where 
We ought to. We have difficult and strained relationships at times in our lives. And sometimes we, we, we act like we can't figure out why. We don't know what's wrong with the relationship, but it's so often because we have sabotaged our relationships through a lack of kindness. So then what does kindness look like in everyday life? What does kindness look like at the dinner table? What does kindness look like after dinner when there are dishes to be done and a table to clean? What does kindness look like, say, in your school or where you work or with your neighbors? What does kindness look like at Summer Sanctus? How can you put kindness into practice this week here at camp? Kindness, it's interesting. You look at, at, at what kindness is associated uh, in the rest of the New Testament. Kindness, you could say, keeps very good company. If you really want to understand what kindness is, it's, it's good to look at the things that are associated with kindness. So I've already mentioned this in Ephesians 4, and Paul unpacks kindness. He talks about tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And he goes on to talk about love and, and this aroma of, of love, a sacrificial love. Uh, Galatians 5 includes kindness as one of the fruit of the Spirit. Linked there, of course, with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kind of company love keeps. In Colossians 3, kindness is linked with tender mercies, with humility, with meekness, with long-suffering. So you know kindness because of its cousins or because of its siblings. You know kindness is present when these other attributes, these other virtues are present. Kindness never travels alone. Kindness brings with it all these other virtues. So if you want to know what kindness looks like, this is how you spot it. Is there humility? Are there tender mercies present? Is there forgiveness? Is there love? What are some other features of kindness? If kindness is so crucial to building community and building these kinds of relationships, what does it look like? Kindness means you build others up rather than tearing them down. Kindness means you look for opportunities to encourage others, to affirm others. But you'll have lots of chances to do that kind of thing this week. Oh, sure, there are a lot of times where you could be critical, but you hold your tongue for kindness' sake. There are times where you could be silent. You could just remain silent and say nothing. But you decide to speak a word of praise or a word of encouragement, again, for kindness' sake. Kindness is very much tied to what we do with our words. Kindness is not the same as niceness. I think sometimes we think, oh, if you're kind, that just means you're, you're a nice person. Uh, and there may be some overlap there, what we mean by nice, what we mean by uh, being kind. But kindness goes much deeper. Niceness is usually superficial. Niceness is not politeness. Uh, it's not the same. It may, again, may overlap and include politeness in various kinds of ways, but it's much more. Manners might be a way of expressing kindness uh, because manners are a form of respect and thoughtfulness towards others. But kindness goes beyond that. It embodies what those manners are really all about love and, and uh, encouragement towards others. Kindness is crucial to friendship. Kindness creates friendship. Kindness bonds us to one another. I remember seeing an inter interview with uh, the multimillionaire Howard Hughes. This was years ago. Uh, but you know, he's one of the wealthiest men in the world. He was once asked, what's it like to have so much money? And you know what he said? He said, I'd give it all the way for just one friend. My millions for a friend. Somebody who will treat me with kindness. Having friendships that are permeated with kindness, it's, it's an incalculable value. It's an incredible treasure. 
Kindness means avoiding unnecessary arguments. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, Paul, uh, he's describing the pastor there, but really it applies to all of us. He says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to all. How many times do we get into unnecessary and unproductive arguments that waste time and hurt our relationships? that leave us angry and alienated from one another, where if we just avoided the, you know, do what Paul says here, don't quarrel, and instead be kind to all, life would be much better. Kindness breaks the cycle of useless arguments. It sets us free to enjoy one another. Kindness aims to bring out the best in others. Kindness wants to see others flourish and fulfill their potential. Kindness does not envy, but rejoices in the success of others. Envy is such an insidious sin where we don't want to see others succeed. We feel like their success comes at our expense. Kindness doesn't do that. Kindness is happy to see others do well, happy to see others thrive and flourish. Kindness being, means being committed to the good of others beyond what you can get out of it. So many times in our relationships we do a cost-benefit analysis. We befriend the people who we think can benefit us because this person will do things for me or I'll look cool if I hang out with this person and we're driven by this cost-benefit analysis in who we pursue relationships with, kindness doesn't do that. It doesn't work by that kind of economy. No, kindness befriends others and serves others even if they won't do anything like in return. Because the kind person knows that ultimately God is the one who will repay. God will repay kindness even if others don't. Kindness means taking an interest in others, getting to know them, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their needs, their gifts. So, of course, kindness is tied to humility. It means you have to take the focus off yourself. I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. To be humble doesn't mean you have to self-deprecate and tear yourself down. Because, really, if you're doing that, you're still focused on yourself. Humility just means you don't focus on yourself at all. You're focused on others. And so, of course, Lewis goes on to say, when you've been in the presence of a humble person, uh, it, it has this glorious effect on you. You, you, you. you don't think about that person as being a humble person, but you just think of them as being a person who's really taken an interest in me, who's really shown me love. Uh, maybe you've read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, you know, I, I, To Kill a Mockingbird is a great book, very interesting book. Uh, Atticus Finch, fascinating character in the book, uh, and, and To Kill a Mockingbird, he says you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. That's what it takes to practice kindness. Get inside the other person's skin. See things from their perspective. That's good counsel if you want to practice kindness. Kindness means you don't think of yourself as a victim all the time. You're not easily offended you're tender-hearted but also thick-skinned. You know, we live in a culture where people are constantly getting their feelings hurt. People are hypersensitive. That's why we have to talk about things like microaggressions. People get their feelings hurt over the littlest things, the smallest things. It's interesting. I, I gave you Sartre's definition of hell, which is very wrong. Okay, here's C.S. Lewis's definition of hell. It says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and where everyone has a grievance. True kindness means I can overlook the sins of others. I'm not going to be easily offended. I don't keep a record of wrongs. I'm quick to forgive and slow to anger. 
So let me give you a little counsel here in terms of how to show kindness as we wrap this up. Start by showing kindness to those closest to you in your family, your church, your your wider community, your neighborhood. God does not command us to love mankind. God commands us to love our neighbor. And, of course, we can do the Pharisee thing and ask, who is my neighbor? But recognize, everyone God brings you into daily contact with, at the very least, you can consider that person a neighbor. That circle of who is my neighbor certainly includes the people you interact with on a daily basis. Those are the people you're responsible to love. Those are the people you're responsible to touch with kindness. So start with your siblings. How can you be kind to your siblings? Start with your parents. How can you be kind to your parents? Start with your classmates or the people who live on your street or the people you work with. Start with the people in your innermost circle, the people closest to you. Because let me tell you, the people who are closest to you are often the ones that are hardest to be kind to. It's interesting. Scripture gives us a lot of commands that are qualified by the word especially, like do this, but especially to these people. Like Galatians 6 says, do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. So what's that mean? Show kindness to everyone, especially your fellow church members. Show kindness there. Start there. 1 Timothy 5 says, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith. So be kind to everyone, but especially your own family members. If you can't be kind to your own family members, you're worse than an unbeliever. In a very real sense, start there. Kindness is especially needed in our families. You know, you can often walk into a home and know right away whether or not there is a culture of kindness in this home. We need what you could call domestic kindness or household kindness. And it's interesting, you know, Paul gives this command to be kind at the, at the end of Ephesians 4, and I really think he's unpacking it in a lot of Ephesians 5 and into chapter 6. So, for example, later in chapter 5, when he gets to husbands and wives, I think he's telling husbands how to be kind. A husband is kind by loving his wife sacrificially as Christ has loved the church. And wives show kindness to husbands by showing respect and obedience towards their husbands. So there's kindness in, in the marriage. You know, a husband shows kindness by protecting, providing for his wife, and a husband who neglects his wife, who doesn't seek to understand her and her anxieties and and fears and so forth, is unkind. He is destroying his own marriage through his unkindness. He's like Adam and Eve after the fall, alienated from his wife. And a wife who won't respect her husband and follow his leadership is likewise unkind to her husband. Proverbs 31 actually describes the ideal wife. I'm sure a lot of you ladies have done Proverbs 31 Bible studies. Well, one of the things it says about this idealized wife is the law of kindness is on her tongue. She fills her home with kindness. Uh, The ideal wife is a woman who is kind to her husband. The unkind wife is tearing her house down. And don't think, oh, well, then I'll start to practice kindness when I get married, because you can't just turn it on like that. The kindness or unkindness you show when you get married will be the fruit of everything you do in your life leading up to your wedding day. And so think now about how you can instill these virtues and habits and practices of kindness. In Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to talk about fathers and children. Parents can be kind to their children as they raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But what about kids? How can kids be kind to their parents? By obeying their parents. 
honoring their parents. That's what Paul says. Show them respect. Obey them cheerfully, immediately, unquestioningly. They might say, but I don't always feel like being kind this way. So what do I do if I don't feel like showing kindness? Well, again, I know I'm letting C.S. Lewis just kind of drive this talk here, but C.S. Lewis just nails this. So let me quote him again. He says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Simply act as if you did. Don't sit there and try to analyze yourself. Do I feel like being kind? No, just show kindness. You don't have to wait on feelings of kindness and love and affection to act in a kind and loving and affectionate way. Act kind whether you feel like it or not. Because so often obedience will precede emotion. The feelings will follow the act. But see, in our culture, we want to say, well, I'm just going to act on how I feel. That's what the culture is telling you to do. Act on your feelings. Trust your feelings. And know what I'm saying, what Lewis is saying, is no, trust God's word. Do what God says to do, and your feelings will fall in line. Lewis goes on, he says, you know, as soon as we do this, as soon as we start to act in kindness, even if we don't feel this way towards a person, he says, we find one of the great secrets of life. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will soon come to love him. Likewise, if you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them more and more. Actions, yes, flow out of affections. Actions often flow out of our feelings. That's true. But the reverse is also true. Your affections often follow your actions. Your emotions are often shaped by the way you act. So don't wait on feelings of kindness. Act in kindness and trust that your feelings will follow suit. Avoid kindness killers. You know, sometimes when we're wronged, we'll nurture a grudge. And, and in doing so, we kill kindness. Nurturing that grudge leads to bitterness. Uh, instead of doing that, of course, kindness would practice forgiveness. Uh, very often when people are unkind, we need to recognize if somebody's unkind to us, there's a very good chance it's because others have been unkind to them. And they are hurting in some way. And if you can respond to their unkindness with kindness you will address not only the hurts of that person, but actually you'll be addressing hurts within yourself. Uh, one of the church fathers, Ambrose, said, no one heals himself by wounding another. But you know, there's also a slogan that a lot of Christian pastors and counselors will use, hurt people, hurt people. So often if somebody hurts you, it's because they're hurting. And if you'll respond with kindness, you'll not only be healing your own heart, you might be healing their heart as well. One last thought here. Where do you get the strength to be kind? This brings us back to where we started. You're not going to find the strength for kindness in yourself. Again, if you look at Ephesians, you'll see the strength to be kind is found in God. God's kindness is the fountain from which all kindness flows. Psalm 117, His merciful kindness is great toward us. Isaiah 54, the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. God's kindness is firmer than the creation. Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9:17, God is ready to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. Kindness characterizes how God treats us. Luke 6:35, Jesus says God is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. Again, God himself is the model of kindness. 
Romans 2, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Kindness has a transformative effect on people. Titus 3, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared according to his mercy, he saved us. The kindness of God is Christ, is manifested to us in Christ. And really my favorite, Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved and raised up with Christ and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, he might show you the immeasurable grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness is our salvation. And when we show kindness to others, we're showing them what salvation looks like. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that your kindness to us would fill us with kindness towards other people. You are a kind God. May we be a kind people who reflect you. Would we live in community in the way that you called us to do? Forgiving one another, being tender-hearted to one another, loving one another. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.